Empire. Hello and welcome to my podcast. All right, Sam. Do me a favor, subscribe to the John Conn Report wherever you get your podcasts. You're watching on YouTube, hit that like button, hit that subscribe button. You can find us there as part of Empire Media. That's A-M-P-I-R-E. Always much appreciated when you tune in and you can read my work on ESPN.com. I have a story up now about how the slow starts have contributed to another slow start to the season for the Washington Commanders. And as you can see to my side is Sam Fortier from the Washington Post. And shout out Mary Fortier for tuning in. Anyway, Sam, thanks for joining me. Sam always likes when I do my little intro. So people people didn't see, but um, before this, I, I don't know if people know this, but a lot of NFL players use smelling salts on the sidelines before games where they get really amped up. You know, you'll see like right before the first drive, a lot of offensive linemen doing smelling salts. And it felt like that's what Kime did the first time he did this intro. Like, Hello and welcome to my podcast. I came in hot. I came in hot. I was a little, a little bit fired up. You know, I, when you have a good guest, you get you you get fired up and. Sometimes when I have you, I get fired up too. So, <laughs> all, right, fair. all right, let's go. So today we're, we're taping this on Wednesday, first day back at the facility. And we talked to Ron Rivera and we asked him about, are there any potential changes that could take place on the offensive line, which has had some issues? Not all the issues are their fault. Not all the sacks are their fault. We already know that Sadiq Charles, he's got the calf injury, not expecting him to go. So you would expect Chris Paul to go in there. Any other change that basically Ron Rivera told us, you know, they're open to anything essentially. So what was your take after talking to him? What's your, what, what were your thoughts about that? If you listen to his words and you watch the film, I would probably expect a new center on Sunday. Uh, Nick Gates did not play very well and, and he was pretty distraught after the game, had his head in his hands for a while. I went up to him and said, Hey, do you want to talk? And he ultimately did talk later, but he was like, if you're going to report anything, just say I got my ass kicked. So uh, I think that he knows that, that he played pretty poorly, and so I would expect to see someone new in there, whether that's Ricky Stromberg or Tyler Larson, the veteran. Um, I think that's, you know, kind of remains to be seen. I would I would probably expect it to be Larson, who's more veteran. Um, and we can get into the, the draft class implications of not starting Ricky Stromberg, your third-round pick at center, if, if that's the way they do ultimately go. Um, and, and like you said, Sadiq Charles will probably be out, so I think we'll see – either Stromberg or Chris Paul. Um, but, I, but I mean, I don't think that these names are what's going to fix this team. I don't right. think that's the inspiring thing. But, you know, logistically, I think that's just the way it's going to go. And I would think, based on what they're going through now, that you'd want to get a veteran center out there, Tyler Larson. And that's what, you know, they've played well with him in the past. And I think with some of the stuff that teams are throwing at them up front, but – you got something to say. Well, just Ron Rivera always talks about his record with Tyler Larson. And I'm not saying that Tyler Larson's a bad player by any means, but I think that that had a lot to do with circumstance more than oh, it did. Of course. <laughs> of course. Tyler of course. Larson. Listen, let's not, you know, he's not, we're not talking about a Pro Bowl center here. Right. But if you're going to, you know, if you're going to have some issues, um, I, I would, I could see them going with the veteran first. And then it depends on with Stromberg. I actually have liked Stromberg at guard in terms of the awareness he plays with. I don't know if he's ready for a starting job at that point. The offense changes a little bit. I think Sadiq moves a little bit better than Chris Paul, but maybe you get a little bit more power with the run game with both those two. And so the other part, the interesting part to the Nick Gates thing, as you said, after the game, when we're in the locker room today, he's usually very present in there. And today he was not. 
So, and he was in there, he popped in there, but then he he was out of there pretty quickly. So I think that's another sign of something going on. But what does it say? If it's not Stromberg, what does it say about that draft? Well, the first round pick would be benched. The second round pick would be in on the field in a limited capacity. They feel like they would have had to compensate for him. The third round pick would be not a starter or even a backup at center or guard. Um, the fourth round pick is on IR. The fifth round pick is inactive every week. Uh, the sixth round pick gets a few carries and got a, a few carries last week, but it's it's not like he's uh, a world beater. Um, and the seventh round pick plays special teams only, which to me is is an absolutely disastrous draft class. So far it is. And obviously with a draft class, it takes a few years. We know that. So maybe Forbes gets it. I, you know, Martin in the few plays he had last week has looked better, but still you need more impact from a draft class. And the funny thing is it could be the one guy who impacts it most might be Rodriguez down the road, Chris Rodriguez. I mean, I like that kid, but I don't, but you're still talking about draft class where you're getting, you're not getting enough from in a team that needs more. Like if you were five and two and you're the 49ers and you're, you're finding it hard to play young guys, that's one thing, but this is a team that needed more from the draft. Club. And and it's also a front office staff that knew going into the draft, you know, Oh, there's probably going to be a sale. Oh, we are probably going to be coaching and drafting for our jobs. And you got a draft class that is like one of the least productive, one of the least played draft classes in the entire league. And it's not like they're a good team. Um, and so it's just, it's a real, I think, indictment on, on the personnel staff, the front office, um, the decision-making um, that they had. And and obviously, you know, <laughs> Forbes could be something someday, you know, he could be a real guy. I'm not ruling that out or any of these guys could be um, like you said, but it's just not the timeline that this team needed contributions on. Well, especially, especially when you look at, to the free agent signings, Nick Gates and Andrew Wiley. And, and if those guys were doing great, you'd say, okay, well, I understand this, but that hasn't, that's not what's developed. The, the frustration with that for me is that it was eminently foreseeable that those guys were not going to come in and fix your offensive line. In fact, <laughs> I did a whole story in the preseason about all the people who did foresee this. Uh, I talked to, I want to say like three scouts and two senior personnel executives of different teams. Uh, I talked to Brandon Thorne, who does a great job with the trench warfare newsletter, breaking down offensive line play Seth uh, Walder, who works at your place. You know, he does analytics on offensive line that the pass block run block win rates. Um, every single person who looked at this offensive line out of the building, it felt like said, Hey, the offensive line's a concern, and I don't think the guys they brought in were very good or or that they, they were not going to elevate this line. I mean, the way that Brandon Thorne put it to me is Washington is betting on Andrew Wiley to play the best he's ever played. Like, he was the fifth best offensive lineman in Kansas City. They're betting on him to be the second or third best one here. And so it's it's just the the process is so suspect. Um, and the bets that they made, I know Eric Bieniemy had influence on bringing in Andrew Wiley, but the fact that this offensive line is not – and I think they were playing a little bit better than people – gave them credit for because Sam was holding the ball and taking sacks. Um, and I still think they are a little, a, a tiny bit better than people probably give them credit for, but like the struggles that they're having were entirely foreseeable. And it's, and it's mind boggling to me that we're at this point. Well, and I think it's also, I think you look at, and I've talked about this before, if you're going to have a young quarterback, you've got to build a strong, strong line. Like we, Cause you know, it's probably going to take him a minute to adjust to, and that because that was one of the knocks on him in college that he held the ball a little bit. So if you know that, you got to build a stronger wall around him. And I, you know, I'll be honest, like I thought at, at nothing else, like well, you look at guard, like well, they should be better than what they with those the guy like Trey Turner and Andrew Norwell. And so, and you thought, well, if Nick Gates can be steady, it gives them 
studying this at a position where they haven't had it for a couple of years, but it has, it has not worked out. And I didn't think they're going to be this world beater, but I also thought the combination might be better. But then certainly in hindsight, you needed to, you, well, even at the time, I worried that did you build a strong enough wall up front to protect this kid and give him the time he needs? Yeah. And I will say that he did hold the ball a lot in college. Like the NFL cultural ball average for quarterbacks in terms of sack rate is like 6%. And he's always been at 8% or higher. That's always been a big part of his game, but okay. So you didn't build a great offensive line and you know, you have a quarterback who has that problem. I think then the solution would be, okay, like we can mitigate some of these problems by running the ball <laughs> and they haven't done that either. Right. So it really feels like a bad combination of we didn't, build this thing to maximize our talent, but we're still going to play a certain style. And, and that to me, it's, it's, there's a lot of layers here, but none of them really add up. Cause it doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like everybody is on the same page in terms of what they have and what they need to do to execute with what they have. I think Sunday was a prime example that first half versus the second half, the things that Terry McLaurin was talking about, about what he wanted to see earlier, what you watch the giants do with a far worse on paper offensive line and how they manipulated what their game plan to adapt to all that. I think all of that it kind of, to me, highlighted some of those issues too. So, you know, I don't know, did anything like that jump out to you? Did you? Yeah. I mean, like, I know that it seems like fans want him to roll out more. And, and Sam Halleck actually kind of talked about that today saying that you have to get specific looks and you can't do it all the time. It's, you know, you can't spam that button because then it, you know, it becomes less effective. But I think that if you if you want to dig on on play action or if you want to dig on Sam's comfortability under center or some of those different looks that they can give teams that they're not giving them super regularly, I think those are things that you can point out and say, hey, why aren't you doing that more? Why aren't you running the ball more? And even when the defense is keeping games within one score, because for a long time, that was the thing that Eric Bieniemy could lean on, right? Is, hey, like we're down two or three scores almost immediately. I can't run the ball. But now that there've been some of those score neutral situations, you're seeing him just show a clear preference for pass, which is, which is fine if you have the tools to do it, but you clearly don't, whether it be the line, whether it be the quarterback. And, you know, I think that the receivers are not getting open at the rate that, that people would like them to. So, I mean, you're just not adapting to the game circumstances at the rate that you need to, to have a successful offense. And, and when your defense is playing a little bit better, albeit against worse competition, it's just, it's a, it's a maddening, it's a maddening combination of factors that are going to lead to embarrassing losses. NBA fans, the wait is over. Basketball is back, and DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA, is celebrating with an unbeatable offer. New customers could score $200 instantly in bonus bets for throwing down $5 on the NBA. Win or lose, it doesn't matter. You'll start the season with an instant dub. And with DraftKings parlays, everyone's got a shot at even bigger basketball wins. String together multiple bets from the same game or build your parlay across multiple games for a shot at making your payday even sweeter. Basketball's more fun when you're in on the action. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code KIME, K-E-I-M. New customers can get $200 in bonus bets instantly for betting just $5 only on DraftKings Sportsbook with code KIME. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly. On behalf of 
Boot Hill Casino and Resort. Licensee partner Golden Nugget Lake Charles. 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See sportsbook.draftkings.com slash basketball terms for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. And I think part of the problem that I have with the run game is not so, it's, you know, I think clearly you would need to do it a little bit more. Problem is they're not doing it well when they're doing it. And so like, and you'll like this. So on first drives of the game, first first drives of the game. So on on the first drive, right. On the first drive of a game though, this team ranks next to last in yards per carry. It's 2.7 on the first drive of the game. So you want to come out and try and establish it and you can't. Now, part of it is it's always an inside gun handoff on the first play. So shocker, right? Yeah, I, mean, I, I can't remember you did or Nikki did, but so Nikki did it. went back and looked and was like yeah. in the seven games, they've done that six or five or six times. I mean, and so, so that to me is the problem too, is that it's, it's, it's the effectiveness of the runs is not there. And that's why I wonder if a guy like Chris Rodriguez starts to get a little bit more carries because I think he fits a little bit more of the style right now, because I think he's a little bit more used to what they're asking to do. I don't know that that's the answer because I think sometimes you can look at, is it the run game design? I'm not smart enough to go deep, deep into that, but I, you wonder about all that because I, when, when, when Brian Robinson runs it right, is he getting a hole to run through? Well, on the touchdown he did, they did a good job of, of creating gaps through alignment of the play. You don't see enough of that, right? And so that's one of the things I wonder about too. But um, one of the things too, and I want to get into the trade deadline in a few minutes because that's coming up and I want to get your thoughts on that. But out, but sticking with the offensive theme and early in games, Terry McLaurin. And, you know, he was very vocal, very vocal for him, very vocal after the game. And, and it's, listen, the guy said what he said. If anybody else says it in a different way, it's a headline. He says it in a very diplomatic way way that doesn't that gets a point across without creating it's a masterful skill but anyways that's what he did do you think anything changes based on what he said um sunday i mean that's the one of the most interesting questions right is is how much influence does terry mclaurin have as as their you know highest paid skill player as one of their best players on offense if not their if not the best player on offense i mean he is seeing things on the field and, and clearly he's making recommendations. He he said, I don't know if you covered this in a previous podcast, but you know, he said when we're facing pressure like that, we need to go down the field. We need to exploit um, you know, the edges. We need to take shots because that's when they're weaker and that's when they're vulnerable. And if you hit a couple of those, like they did, safeties can't play 10 to 12 yards from the ball and and they have to, you know, play a little softer and respect your your downfield game a little bit more. So I mean Terry McLaurin, I think, is a pretty smart guy. Uh, I think he's seeing on the field and he's making recommendations. Will Eric Bieniemy adapt to that? Will he? And, and I don't think it's just about touches for Terry McLaurin, which is which is where Washington benefits. It's not just you know this soft power articulating like, hey, like I'm I'm going to tell you what I'm upset about, but I'm not going to do it in a way that creates headlines or gets viral videos, like you said. Um, but it's, I, I think he really does have some solid ideas for how can this offense be more effective. And I'm curious to see if Eric Bienmi incorporates that. And and I believe he is too. So, but I will say, like the one thing Terry also understands is his importance to this team. He is he's he's very he's very aware, but it's not in an arrogant way. He understands guys come up to him and say, "Hey, we need you to make a play." And the response is like, I, you know, you can't call your own play. You can't throw it to him. You can't call it for yourself. But he understands what he means to everybody else. So he understands like. 
that if he's getting the ball a ton, it's probably not good for the offense because others need to be involved. But if you're not getting it at all, it's horrible for the offense. To me, Terry saying that and John Allen's quote about, you know, I'm tired of of this stuff for the last seven years. Now, wait a minute. What did he say? I'm tired of this stuff. Well, listen, it's a family friendly podcast. If my mom listens to this, shout out to my mom. I don't want to, I don't want her to be, you know, upset, but I mean, here's the thing. Those two guys acting the way that they have, I think that they're getting deja vu and I can't blame them because if you look at it, so Ron Rivera every year that he's been in Washington, all four seasons in the first seven games, they've won two or three. They go on a mid-season surge where they win like four of six, four of five. Uh, they put themselves like in the playoff picture, and then ultimately they've fallen short. The last two or three games, they, they've gone, they, they've gone one in, or they've gone one and three or one and two over the last three or four games every year. Twenty twenty, obviously, <laughs> the NFC East faltered more, and they made the playoffs. But but that is, it feels like I am watching the same movie over and over and over again. You have no idea, my man. <laughs> Right. This is my fourth season on the beat, not not 34th. Um, but it feels like the Ron Rivera era has stuck to the same script every year. And I think that those guys are feeling that. Oh, yeah. And so that's why they're they're speaking up in the ways that they are right now. And I also think for a lot of these guys, too, like this was as hard a camp as they've had in a while. You want to see that payoff. You need to see that payoff for you to maintain your like your belief in that things are going the right way. And I will say, I think Sunday's a big game for a lot of this is how do you come back from that? And I know a lot of you can say it's over, it's a wrap. Players don't think I'm like that. And I would also say, like, this is maybe a little bit big brain, a little bit galaxy brain or whatever, but like the NFL is so do you know that phrase, galaxy brain? I, it's never been applied to me, so I don't know. <laughs> no, it's it's like an internet like meme, like going galaxy brain. Like, okay, yeah. okay, okay. Just make your point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, the NFL last year had its like most successful year ever in terms of parity, what the NFL probably calls competitive balance. The average margin of victory was like 9.13 points per game, which was the lowest it had been since 1932. There are more fourth quarter comebacks. Games are you know within one score in the fourth quarter all the time. And so like, basically what I'm trying to say is that the margin between the top and the bottom is thinner than ever. So like, yeah, I know people want to say it's three and four, you lost to the giants, like it's over, but I would say that Ron Rivera's history here, the state of the league, like everything points to a classic Ron Rivera finish of, of like, they're going to stay in this because even if they lose on Sunday, the furthest out they can be statistically from the number seven seed. I know it's probably early to look at that, but it's, it's one and a half games. Like there's a huge clump of teams that are basically between like, you know, 11 and six in, in this conference. And so like they can lose and I still don't think the season's over and the, but, but obviously, you know, you want to win to, to give guys belief and hope. I think that's more critical. I think that's where it's critical. And it's also, you, you can look at the second half of the schedule. It's a lot harder. So that's part of the bottom line too. When I look at it as like, can you, does this schedule set up to give you, that sort of a second half push, but you're right. Like after seven games, God, what was the record? I want to say it was at like seven and I think like seven or eight and 14 or something like that after, I guess it'd be 21 games. Right. So yes, I think it was like the record under Ron Rivera after seven games combined over the last three. Oh, oh, oh. It's like, it's not very good, but over the, from thereafter it's over 500. So his, it's yeah. something like his winning percentage in the first seven weeks is like 450 and his winning percentage after that is like 580. Right. So that, you know, so that is part of the equation. However, you need to show, I mean, you have to give proof that this is going to turn around. 
things turn around really weird in the NFL and you never know, but that leads us to the next Well, Actually one last thing on this with Terry, because one of the things, and I talked to him last week about this as part of a story and also through on the podcast, a little interview about like, where are you getting at with McClure, with, with, with Sam Howell? Are you at the point now where you can, you know, where you're developing a different rhythm in the past game because you're getting to know each other. And there were a couple of plays in the Atlanta game that showed it. But then you look at Sunday, the giants game, that third down where, that he and, and Sam were not on the same page. And I think and one of the things he, that Terry talked about today was can they, they need him to get to the point where, yes, like that's not, because he was talking to, to Howell on the sidelines after the game, getting to the point where you guys see the coverage and even though it doesn't run the play called, you're going to adjust on the fly. So like Terry runs a back shoulder because that's where the leverage is and Sam through throws to the corner because that's where the play was. So like, that's also like, that's an advanced stage. And I think for McLaurin, God, it's, it also speaks Sam to, to hit that, that guy's need to play with, you know, just strong quarterback play. Like what could he do? with a strong quarterback play. Not that Sam can't give it to him. I don't, we don't, you know, there's still time to go there, but like, you know what I'm saying? Like how desperately that guy wants to have that connection with a quarterback, you know, that play, I think feels like a real microcosm of Ron Rivera said, we want to build up the roster um, for a young quarterback because that's the you know bet with that we're making. And I don't think that was a bad bet, particularly like considering how things went with Carson Wentz and, and it, you know, how things look in new Orleans with Derek Carr. Like I don't think bringing in another veteran was the answer, but yeah. it's those types of plays. It's it's like, that is such a microcosm of, of the struggles and the, the, the frustrations that a receiver can have after years and years of this. And yeah, I think everybody would like to see him, you know, reach his full potential and capability with, with a, a good quarterback. And I know that, you know, Terry got a bag, which was really nice. And, and, you know, he has some, he has financial security forever now. Um, but just as a competitor, like as a player, you know, it, it's tough. And, and just as a, as a person who likes football a lot, it's tough to see him not be able to unlock his full capabilities. And, and my only point is his, it should, I should have said is his desire to have that kind of connection and develop that kind of connection. I think if, if he sees he's developing with Howell, I think he'll be in a good shape for the future because he's only 28 years old. Last topic, trade deadline. So, you know, there are three and four going in this game. We all we all know that, you know, the guys are going to draw the most injuries are Montez Sweat and Chase Young. And, um, you know, I know, like, there's all names out there, but you're not going to trade a lot of these guys. You're just not. It doesn't go like that. The only other option, and, and I know it might not be on the table, but I've seen Cleveland columnists banging the table, is Jacoby Brissett. Correct. Because of how the Deshaun Watson situation is unfolding. And he knows that the Cleveland media fans are are calling for him he certainly has no comment on it my only thing on that would be and i know like yeah okay first of all teams don't do other teams favors so if you think you still need the guy you're going to keep him i will say i think for sam howell's development you want jacoby Brissett here doesn't matter this is about for him off the field having a veteran presence to talk to i think for his development it's very important to have a guy like that here i don't know that you're going to get anything for him that well i was going to say is like how what, at what price, you right, know, well, at what price? And I think, listen, if, if they say, we'll give you a fourth round pick, well, how do you not listen? That, and because it's saying. also, because the key here too, is it, this is where this team, this franchise is in a weird spot because you have a staff that still, you know, you lose, you still, you need, you're desperate to win now, but then you have an owner. It's like, wait a minute, you got to do what's best for the franchise, whether that's short or long term. And I think that's the thing that's going to be interesting here. And what constitutes, you know, a good long-term view of this so if you're 
because again, the guys who bring the value, Chase and Montez, and I know Nick, you, you reported that they, there was an offer for Montez. Um, even like as of a day or two ago, there were no offers for either one, but there was interest. There were calls about them. And there have been calls about these guys for a long time. So what would constitute for you good law, uh, good value at the deadline if they get to three and five for one of those guys? And what? So I, I wrote yesterday the cases for and against trading right, these right. guys. And I meant to plug that. <laughs> no, no, no. All good. Um, and I think the case for trading one of them is basically like, it's not like you're losing a, a valuable part of an elite defense. I mean, this defense is... 25th in EPA, 28th in scoring. And so like, and, and you've had 798 snaps in the last four years of, of sweat, Allen, Payne, and young together. And, and the results are undeniably underwhelming. Yeah. Um, even though the case against trading them is that Montez sweat looks uh, really good. And he's on pace for a career high sacks, uh, which would be 13 uh, chase young had two sacks on Sunday. He looks like he might be past his um, knee injury and his ceiling, I think is, is still, you know, could be relatively high and you don't know what it is. Um, so I think, you know, briefly, those are the, the cases for and against. I canvassed the market of what I, of what they think those offers would be. I talked to two senior personnel executives with, with NFC teams and um, who are not trying to trade for these guys so that, you know, they're not um, inflating or, or, you know, trying to tank the market. But basically one of them told me that he thinks that most offers would come in fourth, fifth round pick, a third at absolute right, best. Right. One of them told me that he could see a second for sweat, um, but they don't see like in the last few years, the only splash edge rusher we've seen move um, was actually last year when Denver traded uh, Bradley Chubb to Miami for a first, a fourth, uh, they threw a running back in and then they got Chubb in a fifth. Um, but, Miami wasn't trading those assets for a half season of Chubb because days later they signed him to a five-year, $110 million deal. This One of the executives told me that he could not see teams committing to sweat or young long-term um, uh, right away anyway. So that's going to diminish the return. And I know that fans might be like, a third or fourth or a fifth, like that's crazy. And we can get into the comp pick um, discussion if, if you'd like. But basically, like I see if you can get a, a third-round pick for one of those guys – I think that's good value. Well, I think the reason why is because you're going to get a third round pick possibly in compensatory picks in 2025. I say possibly because the formula has to work. Now they have so many guys who are free agents. I can't see them not getting a few comp picks in, in, in the 2025 draft. But the question would be, do you get a guaranteed third round pick right now or a possible third round pick in 2025? That to me is what it comes down to, because I agree, like you're not going to commit. I mean, I've kind of that's what I've heard from others as well, which is you're not going to get this great return on these guys. I mean, forget a first round pick. And, you know, you're not I mean, I don't know why you give up anything more than a third for a half, what could be a half year rental. So that is that's the question. Would you rather have a third in 2024 or a possible third in 2025? And the third in 2024 would be inherently better because the comp pick is going to be at the end of the third round. The thing. That the thing that I think um, people need to be aware of is Washington is is projected to have 90 plus million dollars in cap room, the fourth most amount of cap room. And if you have a new GM next year, you're going to be spending like crazy. And I don't want to dig all the way into the weeds, but basically, like if you go out and you spend a bunch of money, yes, Montez Sweat or or and or Chase Young could be worth a third round comp pick. But if you sign someone at that level, they can cancel out or they can diminish the value of the comp pick. So if like basically I was talking to um Nick Corte, who's the, who's the comp pick analyst at Over the Cap, and he was just saying 
it's it's almost impossible to bet on a third uh, getting a third comp pick when you look at Washington's situation. He was like, to me, if you're if you can lock in a third third rounder in 2024, that's a smart move because you can play the compensatory pick game, but there's a lot of things you can't control: percentage right. of snaps, right. how much guys people like, how much people will um, pay for other guys. So yeah, like a third round pick is po- comp pick is possible, but it's far from guaranteed. And I think one thing to keep in mind too that Josh Harris is very big on analytics. I would guarantee that all the stuff you just said is how they're going to look at it too, because that's how he operates. And so, you know, I don't think he's going to go in there and tell Ron Rivera, you guys got to do this, this, and this. I think it's going to be, if you're three and five, you owe it to the franchise to explore these deals and see what you can get. And, you know, I don't, I would not trade both these guys, but I, but if you can, if it's three and five, then I'm going to look and see what you can get for the same reasons that you said. Yeah, and and I the the number one argument against trading both of them is like it's hard to get players who have their potential, who have their physicality, right? Like number two picks don't don't happen all the time. But yeah, to your point um, about Josh Harris, I think that Ron Rivera failing to explore the trade market fully or or not pulling the trigger on a good deal just cast you know cast doubt on your judgment even more. So even though Ron is incentivized to keep the most amount of talent he can he needs to do a good job canvassing this market and making the right decision because, you know, I, I think that we both would agree that it's a long shot that Ron is here next year or that this regime is here next year. Um, I don't want to speak it's, for you. It's not trending. I mean, the the record's going to be the dictator and the record's not trending the right way. Right. But so, but I think that like, you know, if he were to do something, I don't think that he would, but if he were to do something like that, then then that's going to be a mark against him as well. Correct. I think right now you have to take the approach is what's the best thing for the franchise? Because what if you trade go three and five? Let's say you're three and five. You make the trade. Let's say you trade Montez Sweat for a third round pick. And then you somehow start to play well. For whatever reason, things just start to click. Well, then if you're Josh Harris, you can say, okay, you got this young quarterback that was your guy and Sam Howell looks good. And you did at a time where you could have done the wrong thing for the franchise, you did the right thing. You you put it up. You know what I mean? Like you would take all that into consideration. Now we may be going down this you know, this fairy tale road to think that it would happen, but you don't know what happens. Right. But if you're Josh Harris, you're going to analyze it from every cert, every, every angle like that. And I think that's a way to go. And I think, you know, so I, I, you owe it to the franchise to check because to me, the number one question you always ask if you're in charge, what's the best move for the franchise? Is it getting rid of Sam Mills that time? Is it changing the offensive coordinators? Well, the answers to those things were yes. And so the same, the same rule of logic applies here. And if you're, again, if you're Josh Harris, you're going to, if nothing else, you let them know, like you need to at least explore to see what's out there. Yeah. So they're, right. Absolutely. No, absolutely. And I mean, this is a guy who, who greenlit the process. And I think that like, even, even if they trade Montez Sweat and he goes and balls somewhere else for the rest of the year, like, like I don't, I think that to your point, Josh Harris is a guy who's good at operating under known information at the time. And he's not going to, you know, hold it against you if, if things don't always turn out um, the right way, except maybe this draft class, except for this draft class. But he is, but he is a guy who's very big on information way much. You might have a hard time believing this, but he relies on information way more than the other guy who relied on. Yeah, go get him, you know, or no, don't, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, go get that, that's it. You know, like he plays quarterback. Let me get him. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're bringing you're bringing press room bits into the podcast. I love it, but but that but that is the truth. Like whereas this guy is operating more from a logic based decision making process, and logic suggests if you're three and five, 
and you don't look for it, you're, you're committing a bad thing for the friend. And I, and I do think that like, um, it'll be interesting to know how Josh Harris plays this. Cause this is his first arguably big opportunity to put his thumb on the scale. If he wants to, obviously the last guy did that a lot. Josh has a track record of his organizations of, of letting his people, you know, do their thing. Um, hiring really strong, you know, basketball executives in, in terms of Daryl Morey and, and things like that in hockey as well. But how is he going to approach Washington? And, and especially when, you know, you have a really large um, ownership group, Magic Johnson is out there tweeting every week. I mean, Oh really? Yeah. <laughs> like I'm, I'm curious how Josh and, and Mitch rails and Mark Ein and all those other guys, will they put their thumbs on the scale? And if so, how much? There you go. That's, that's it. I got nothing more on that unless you do. That's no, good, no. good, good talk there. Anyways, and besides, so Mary Fortier knows his, his nuggets and mac and cheese are almost done. So I got to get them out for supper. So I appreciate you, Sam, for joining me. I appreciate you guys for listening. I'll be back on Friday slash Saturday morning with my keys prediction to the Commander's Eagles. Talk to you next time.